Good afternoon. Thank you all for practicing so diligently. The hall has been remarkably quiet since the first night. And when we sit like that, the whole room absorbs that silence that Kisei spoke about, that deep blanket of silence. And people can feel it when they come in the room and they're induced into it. So your practice affects many people. In L.A., we used to have um, family, family visit time. It's one of the marks of a religion that's not a cult. People can come and go. Families can come and go and visit. But we had a special time where we invited families. And even families, uh, I was giving a tour once, and there was a family that was pretty doubtful about what their child was doing at a Zen center. Remember, this is a long time ago. And um, now, you know, mindfulness is popular and everything is named this and Zen this and Zen that. But it wasn't true in those days. So I was, we had, <laughs> I had warned people, look, when the families come, don't walk up to them and say, your aura is so beautiful. You're like a flower. So everybody was on their best behavior, and this still kind of uh, irritated family. I was touring around, reactive family, and we walked into the Zendo, which was an old dentist's office, actually, remodeled in an odd way into a Zendo. To go from one side to the other, you had to go up a flight of stairs across a landing and down another flight of stairs to get from this side of the Zendo to that side of the Zendo. Um, but as soon as we opened the door and walked in, the one person in the family said, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So it's palpable even to people who don't practice and they come in here. Also, since we have somebody from that era in Sashin with us, the uh, chant the Dharma incomparably profound, the Gothan opening the sutra. I changed one word in it. Um, it used to be, now we see it, hear it, receive, and maintain it. And I changed it to as because I thought now was a little not humble. It implied, oh, now see it? Right here. So I change it to as, meaning as we see it everywhere, not just in the teacher sitting up and giving a talk. And I asked Mazumi Roshi's permission. He told him why, and he said, oh yeah, that sounds good. So our koan, besides our many koans in life, and our fundamental life koan, is alive or dead. The main case Daowu, Dogo, in Japanese, visited a family with Jianyuan, Zengen, for a condolence call because someone had died in the family. Jianyuan tapped the coffin three times and said, alive or dead. So you could try tapping this box of human remains periodically when you're sitting. You can go tap, 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 alive or dead. Dao Wu said, I won't say alive, I won't say dead. Jian Yuan said, why won't you say? Dao Wu said, I won't say, I won't say. So this I won't say taken in the context of the Buddhist teachings is the Buddha had three ways of answering questions that were asked to him. Sometimes he would answer right away, and sometimes he would answer later, but not at the time, which you could understand depending on the audience and the circumstance and the person's understanding at that time. And then there were some questions he would not answer. And in Zen, this not answering is very important because 
My answer will not satisfy you. Only your own answer will satisfy you. So the hope in all of this is that you will become deeply determined to find your own answers and to do that through the best tool that I know, which is meditation. Clearing the mind. The answers are there. Prajnaparamita is a deep flowing river of wisdom. And we have access to it when we get out of the way completely. When there's no pushing and there's no pulling. Or as one of our chants says, and when no thing can give offense. You can watch that during a course of a session. And when no thing can give offense, you realize, okay, the mind is clear now of greed and aversion. But how about ignorance? Then we have to work on the ignorance. Mm -hmm. So Dao Wu said, I won't say, I won't say. Jian Yuan could not understand at the time. Later he heard the Avalokiteshvara chapter of the Lotus Sutra being chanted. It said, for one who has attained the monastic body, and don't take this literally, as you have to be ordained. You are here in monastic bodies. You are answering the call of your monastic voice by coming to the monastery and practicing for this week. For one who has attained the monastic body, Avalokiteshvara appears in the monastic's body, your body, and expands the Dharma. Hearing this, Jian Huan came to realization. Can you hear Avalokiteshvara appearing in your body, heart and mind, and expounding the Dharma? The only way that's possible is when you get out of the way. You, the constructed self, that is always thinking, always worrying. You have to come to love silence in the mind. To be revitalized by it. When we're out of the way, there's infinite energy in the universe and it's always flowing into us. We have to become porous to it. And then, we do what it asks us to do. Commentary. Even in his not saying, Dao Wu has said it all. But Jian Wan does not know that it is right in his face. More than in his face. It's in his entire body. Which he heard later, hearing a workman chanting the Avalokiteshvara chapter of the Lotus Sutra, Jian Wan suddenly realizes Dao Wu's compassionate teaching and says, At the time, I was wrongly suspicious of my late teacher. How was I to know that this was not a matter of words and phrases? All parents, all teachers, hope that they will live long enough to have at least one student come back and say, I was wrongly suspicious of what you were teaching me. (laughs) Or I was afraid and I ran away and here I am back again because... I've seen the truth of it. Continuing in the commentary, if you call it alive, you will have negated the fact. If you say dead, you will have missed the truth of the matter by 100,000 miles. To say it is neither alive nor dead, or both alive and dead, compounds the absurdity. At such a time, what will you call it? Capping verse, in birth, not an atom is added. In death, not a particle is lost. Can you see that? Can you experience that? With each birth, not a particle is added. In each death, not an atom is lost. Therefore, life is called the unborn. Death is called the unextinguished. 
this koan is often abbreviated dead or alive, which is a question we have to keep asking, like I said. Tap, tap, tap. Dead or alive? Alive to what? At this moment, what am I alive to? My hand lifting, my right shoulder lifting. Coolness on my lips, so I breathe in. Eyelashes gently touching. I hope you have been trying the little exercises that we've been giving you in dissolving the body. They can be very valuable. The body is such a source of difficulties. Worry about whether your body is attractive to whomever you want to attract. Worry about whether a certain part is too large or too small. Worry about too little or too much hair. Worry about being overweight or underweight. Anxiety regarding gurgling sounds in your belly or gas or belly aches or diarrhea or constipation or fever. Worrying about loss of hair, loss of hearing, loss of vision, loss of flexibility or mobility. Anxiety about whether you'll injure it if you run too much or worry about not making the body exercise enough. Worry about, is there cholesterol collecting in my coronary arteries at this very moment? So we're working on dissolution of this illusion of a body. If you close your eyes, how do you know there is a body? What is the raw data? The raw data is sensations. Warmth, coolness, tingling, a series of touches all over the body, within the body, a collection of touches that seem to be linked together that we call movement, sound, color, form, smell and taste. All of these sensations, when you really regard them, are just a field of sensation, blinking on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. It's like twinkling Christmas tree lights, billions and billions of them, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. Touch, no touch, touch, no touch, touch, no touch. Touch, emptiness, touch, emptiness. Touch, emptiness, touch, touch. And we call part of that field of constantly changing sensations up. And we say, oh, that's where my head is. And then we call part of that field of sensations down. And we say, oh, that's where my feet are. And we call part of that field of sensations in my belly. And then we say, oh, my belly is too fat. Based on what? Based on pure sensation. And then there's the field of thought, which we examine in Zazen. And then we can add feeling tone, positive, negative, or neutral. And that's it. That's the evidence that we have that there is a body that sits and breathes. Where and there is you. If you do a rapid search through this field of on-off, 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 where exactly is you? Where are you? Where do you reside in that field? Is it that sensation? Oh, that's me. Is it that thought? Oh, that's me. Is it that feeling? Oh, that's me. Or is it the flow? Is it the field itself and the constant flow? And if that's true, when we really examine our own body and mind and heart, then can we see the same thing when we open our eyes? A field 
of form and color and sound. Where is the other? We do the exercise on letting your skin dissolve. So, what happens to some of those worries that we have about the body? So close your eyes again if they're open and imagine no one has skin, no one has hair. And that's normal. People are walking around, sitting in the zendo. You're walking around, no skin, no hair. Everyone is walking around quite happy because it's normal with no skin, no hair, just a bundle of muscle, tendons, nerves, and blood vessels. And if that image bothers you because maybe it seems like sticky, (laughs) then you can imagine that instead of skin, everyone has some, like a thin covering of transparent plastic film, like saran wrap on them. But no skin. So make this visualization as clear as you can. You, all the people in this room, all the people that you meet, walking down an imaginary street, no skin. This is normal. No skin, no hair. Your parents, see your parents, no skin, no hair. You see your romantic partner, or hope for romantic partners, and no skin, no hair. Now you pass by a mirror, and you stop and look in the mirror. Oh. No skin, no hair. How do you look? What happens to whatever aversion or criticism you had about your body when you see just muscles and tendons and blood vessels, nerves? Now look at others, maybe somebody whose body you might desire Oh, that's the perfect body. That's the body I would like to have. Now look at them with no skin. What happens to desire for the bodies of others? Whether it's the desire to have a body like that or desire to mate with that body, what happens? If we could see everyone without seeing their skin and hair, would that make a difference to us and to that person? Would they be more alive? In our eyes, and therefore reflected in their awareness, would they be more alive? It's simple to see. If you look at people of color with no skin, so there is no difference based on skin color. Everyone is just a walking bundle of muscle, tendons, nerves, and blood vessels. Would that change life for people of color? In the eyes of the Absolute, the eyes of God, are we all seen in this way? As creations of equal beauty and equal value? Next we had an exercise on being a skeleton. Actually, I was the one who put the skeleton sitting on the chair up here. We dissolve skin, muscles, tendons, nerves, 
blood vessels. So close your eyes and make that real for you. No skin, no muscles, no nerves, no tendons, no blood vessels, no internal organs, no eyeballs. Everything dissolves down to nice, clean bones. This can be be done after you die in water, what's called water cremation. This dissolves everything but the bones. So hold your awareness on yourself as just a skeleton. It's a very lovely awareness. In Zen, there are many images of skeletons with glowing eyes. A skeleton just sitting here on a cushion. A bunch of skeletons in this room, getting up and walking around. What does being nothing but a walking bunch of bones remove? What kinds of pain and suffering disappear if you are only bones? Pain in the body, does it go? What happens to thoughts in the head when your head is just an empty skull with wind blowing through the ear holes? So you see, this kind of meditation affects not just our awareness of our body, but our awareness of our mind, too. A skeleton with glowing eyes. What experience or stage in practice does that represent? Just bare bones with bright eyes often depicted as dancing. Is that the kind of life the old masters are talking about when they say, if you die completely on the cushion, you will never have to die again? Certainly you will be not afraid to die again. Is that what Dogen Zenji means when he says drop off body and mind? Can we approach that? When we imagine ourselves just as a skeleton, an empty skull. Empty yourself out, empty, empty, empty yourself out on the cushion. When the mind is clear of thoughts, a huge burden is lifted and you will feel like dancing. Story time. Two monks were walking along a dusty road on a bright, sunny day like today. The road was busy with traffic, carts pulled by oxen, vendors hawking their goods, a magician doing tricks, gangs of children running around and playing. The younger monk was quite enjoying being out of the monastery and seeing all the sights. Suddenly he said to the older monk, Did you see that beautiful woman who just walked by us? The older monk said, I did see something. Oh, I saw a hank of hair and a flash of teeth. While doing this practice, you could say, Oh, I saw a skeleton draped in cloth. Or when Kisei did the exercise of looking at your hand, lift your hand up again, please. Can you see it as little bones draped in skin? Or do you see it as my hand? And oh my goodness, I don't like parts of it. So in the next exercise, we look at all that we have accumulated. So close your eyes and bring to mind all the clothing you have worn from infancy on to this very moment. 
all the clothing that you have ever worn, starting with diapers and moving up to whatever you're wearing now. Include jackets, gloves, shoes, socks, hats, scarves, and jewelry. Watches. Clothes for Sunday school, clothes for birthdays, clothes for gym class, clothes for the prom, clothes for dates. Costumes when you acted on stage include everything you've ever worn. Just let it flash through. Now imagine putting them all in a pile. Next, imagine all the books and magazines and newspapers you have read from childhood on up to now. Again, flash through your childhood books, elementary school books, high school, college, novels, science fiction, mysteries, magazines, Newspapers, all the books on your library shelf that you have read or have bought and haven't read. And now put them all in a pile. Next, consider all the things that you have bought besides clothing and books. Toilet paper, toothbrushes, Records, cell phones, computers, musical instruments, furniture, dishes, bedding, beds, appliances, bikes, boats, skis, cars, houses. Make sure you include your favorite thing to buy, the one you go out and hunt for. or go online and hunt for. So all the things you've bought from the time you were a child and had a nickel allowance, maybe. 10 cents, 15 cents. And then as you got older, you could buy bigger and bigger things. So put all of that into a pile. In that same pile that has clothing, books, and now all the things you've bought in your lifetime. Now add the things that you have created. So paintings, sculptures, pottery, essays, diaries, journals, books, Sheet music, carpentry projects, small or big, all the things that you have built or created. Gather them all together in your imagination and put them in the pile. Things you've sewn or knitted. even wonderful things that you've, special things you've cooked, all into the pile. Now add all the photos, videos, and recordings of you. Byron Katie would say, how do you know it's you? Where's your evidence? But let's assume they're of you. <laughs> All those records, uh, photographic, video, recordings of you, or supposedly of you, and put them in the pile too. Scrapbooks, 
all these records of my life. So now you have a very large pile of things you could call mine in front of you. Now you sit down in Zazen and you watch it. And you fast forward five years from now. Has the pile changed? Well, we'll remain in five years. And then you fast forward 20 years. Well, we'll remain in 20 years. And you might see things being dispersed, things you gave away, things you gave to goodwill, things that you threw in the trash. They aren't all with you now. Now you fast forward to 100 years. What will happen to all of those things you call mine? What will have happened or will happen to all those things you call mine? <coughs> In 100 years, 21020, 2120. When you're long gone, how about in 200 years? What will happen to the most precious of things that you've bought or collected or held on to as mine? In 200 years, what will happen to the records of what you call my life? Photos, videos, recordings. Will even one picture be left with your name on it and someone who knows who that was in history? Thank you for doing that exercise. The Buddha preached for 45 years after his enlightenment. He spent 25 rainy seasons at Savati, now known as Shravasti, which used to be a magnificent city. They said there were something like 80 million people in it huge city with all kinds of buildings and monasteries. Now you can go see the ruins. In the Samyutta Nikaya, which used to be called the Book of Kindred Sayings, <coughs> in the Rhys Davies translation, or the Connected Discourses of the Buddha in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, we can find a poem that a deva recited at Savati to the Buddha when the Buddha was staying there and teaching. The deva said, Time flies by, the nights swiftly pass, the stages of life successively desert us. Seeing clearly this danger in death, a seeker of peace should drop the world's bait. A seeker of peace should drop the world's bait. Will anything remain after we die that will benefit others? Please ponder this question further. You've looked at the physicality. Will anything remain of the physicality? But will anything remain of your life that will benefit others in 200 years? After I die, will there be anything that will benefit others? Will it be something material or non-material? It could be material. People still visit the ruins of Jetavana Monastery 
pilgrims, religious pilgrims in India and gain benefit from that, or in Sri Lanka. The old monasteries there are very inspiring, even though they're in ruins. It could be something material. Or more likely, will it be something non-material that might continue to provide benefit generation after generation? If karma is what it what continues, as we heard in the last talk, if karma is what continues, if the consequences of what I do and say continues and has the potential to benefit others, then what? Then what? The Deva recited a second poem. Time flies by, the nights swiftly pass, the stages of life successively desert us. Seeing clearly this danger in death, one should, you, one should do deeds of merit that bring happiness. So the question becomes, what brings the greatest ease? What brings simple happiness to you and to those around you? What is the greatest gift you can give to this troubled world? Aizumi Roshi often said, often said, the greatest gift is the gift of Dharma, which is the gift of no fear. The greatest gift is the gift of no fear. Is that true? Like all the utterances of revered teachers, we have to test them for ourselves. Is that true? If you had nothing that you feared, how would that change your thoughts? If every thought that was a worry or an anxiety or fear-based, you were able to dissolve, how would that change? your life. People sometimes ask, well, if you had no fear, then wouldn't you get hit by a speeding car because you would have no fear of a speeding car. No, your body has its own instincts. We're talking about mental fear. And actually, if you get hit by a car and you survive, it's the fear comes afterwards. And the body would get you out of the way of the car, if it could. And if it couldn't, pow! And then either you're not there, and according to people to whom that's happened, you're floating above, looking down, and you go, whoa, that person's in trouble. (laughs) Then you go, oh, oh, that was me, oh. And if you had nothing to fear, nothing to lose, how would that change your life? If you truly knew that in the one, nothing is ever lost, how would that change your life? That when someone dies, every tiny bit of their being is never lost. The yttrium, the zirconium, the sodium, never lost. And all of what we might call the psychic energy is never lost. It might not be visible to you, that collection that you once called by name. It might not be visible to you after it disperses. It might not be huggable by you. You might not be able to converse with it. But nothing is ever lost. What an amazing mind to be able to hold that view. The view of those we love who have died as quadrillions of packets of energy, alighting in quadrillion, quote, other bodies and minds, and living a life again. Can we stretch our mind to be aware of that? Byron Katie says about her husband, when he dies, it'll be the same as when he's in the kitchen. 
When he's in the kitchen, I can't see him or hear him. So what's the difference? Well, you won't be able to see or hear them for a long, long time. And for most people, there's a hole in your heart where they resided that no one else can fill. Its edges will soften over time. But when you check, the hole is still there. And tears might still appear. But if you are never lonely because the whole world is, you could say, your family, and that's not quite accurate. The whole world is part of you. If you are constantly creating it, as part of your life, then there are no holes. When a candle is lit and the wax turns to heat and gas, we don't cry and say, oh, I miss that flame. Oh, poor me, I'm so lonely now without that flame. It's not the same. We know it's a natural transformation when we see it in the rest of our life. But when those we love die, when our pets die, when the humans that we love die, we grieve. And the Zen world loves that. That's what it is to be human. If we didn't do that, there'd be something almost mechanical about it. So that story of Yatsutani Roshi's woman, laywoman's successor, whose granddaughter died, and she was crying bitterly. And somebody said, well, wait, wait a minute, you're a transmitted successor of Yatsutani Roshi. What's the matter with you? You're crying. She said, I'm crying because my granddaughter died. Oh. So that's what it is to be human. When the Buddha was dying, lying down on his right side between the twin solid trees, Ananda, Ananda, who was his cousin and had been his personal secretary, like a jisha for the whole of his life, essentially, as an adult, had been very busy sorting out the people, all the people who had come to see the dying Buddha. You know, who could see the Buddha, who could talk to the Buddha, who could ask a question of the Buddha. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people were there. Because the nose had gotten into the, the town nearby. And actually, this is kind of the reverse of the previous story. When the Buddha said, I'm going to die here, Ananda said, oh, Buddha, this is like nowhere. You shouldn't die here. You should die in, like, a big city. And the Buddha said, this used to be a gigantic city. Chariots rumbling in the streets, palaces, thousands of people. So the Buddha could see impermanence. So does it matter it's not a beautiful city now? Does it matter where, where we die? So Ananda had been very busy. And that often happens when someone dies. If you've had somebody in your family die, there's a lot of business, busyness that happens things to take care of. And you kind of put the grieving on the, on the back burner while you take care of calling people and the obituary and the bank and all kinds of things. People who are coming from out of town who need a place to stay. Very, very busy, which is good. Gives you something to do. But Ananda was suddenly hit by what was happening. And he went into the vihara, the monastery, and leaned against the doorpost. I love these little details. You know, it's these little details that make us so human. He leaned against the doorpost and began weeping. My master, who was so compassionate, is about to pass away. And the Buddha, lying there, noticed, where's Ananda? He asked the monks. And the Buddha told the monks, go and, go and get, tell Ananda, the Master calls you. So that's something he's heard all of his life. The Master needs you. The Master calls you. 
So Ananda went in front of the Buddha and bowed. And the Buddha said, Enough, Ananda, do not grieve, do not lament. For have I not told you from the very beginning that with that which is dear and beloved must be change? And separation. How can you say, may this not come to dissolution? There can be no state of things that doesn't come to dissolution. Then he reassures Ananda in a very beautiful way. He says, you have served me with loving kindness, indeed, word and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with whole heart and beyond measure. Great good you have gathered. Now put forth energy and soon you will be free. And he says that because part of the reason that Ananda is grieving is not just the passing of his master, but the passing of his chance to be enlightened. So this is Ananda who heard and recorded in his mind and could recite back every word the Buddha spoke. And he still had not been enlightened. And the Buddha reassures him and says, just keep practicing. It will happen. Will we be able to die knowing that we have served well in this lifetime? That is a question we need to keep asking. Who or what am I serving? And it's never too late. There was a woman here who came on private retreat who was talking about her mother dying and she had been alienated from her mother. Mother was, we would call, abusive. Uh, to her all of her life. And she decided she didn't need to put up with that abuse, so she just lost communication with her mother for a number of years. And then uh, she got a call from her sister who said her mother was dying, so she went to the, to the hospital, to the deathbed, and her mother, lo and behold, asked for forgiveness. Amazing, hmm? So sometimes it's just in the few days before death that people come to realize what is left undone and what needs to be taken care of. That's a blessing if it happens before we die. And so she reassured her mother, I forgive you. So it's a question we have to keep asking, what is... What is there still for me to do in this life? Who or what am I serving? What will help me serve with more loving kindness, more graciousness, with a whole heart? Will clarifying my vow help? Will clarifying our minds, our hearts help? That's a question I ask myself periodically. Am I aligned especially as you get old, this is a really important question. With the remaining life energy that I have, how do I want to spend it? What's most important? It's so easy to fritter it away. One enchanting YouTube and you're gone for hours. (laughs) But I have the excuse of I'm collecting them for class. Will removing the fear of death help? If only us and those around us when we die. One man in the death class that I used to teach downtown told the story of, he said, he said I, you know, I'm really not afraid to die. And I said, how come? And he said, well, I grew up with my grandmother and my grandmother would take me on her lap when I realized she was getting older and might die and she would tell me over and over again, Honey, I'm not afraid to die. And he was imbued with that equanimity over death the rest of his life. The gift of no fear. She gave it to him. Can we give it to ourselves? Can we give it to ourselves through practice and then give it to others? This is by Mary Oliver. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, 
when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, toward silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Master Rinzai exhorts us, this here is not a place we remain for long. The death-dealing demon of impermanence comes in an instant without discriminating between noble and poor, old and young. This is happening right now in China. The doctor who issued the warning about coronavirus died at 35. The doctor is head of the hospital in Wuhan where the epidemic began, died at 38. About 200 healthcare workers have now died in China. We chant for the two children who were swept out of their father's arms and into the ocean a few weeks ago in Oregon. Without discriminating between noble and poor, old and young, Please, don't just visit this world and seek to be well-fed and entertained. Since you are here and you are giving up this week to look deeply into the truth beyond the ravings of a fearful mind, I know that you won't. But we can all be distracted and we all need reminding. Thank you for coming here so I can remind you and myself.